Hello and welcome to Androids and Assets. I'm Marshall. And I'm Stephen. Today we are very fortunate to be joined by our guest Gautam Batia, author of The Wall. Uh, welcome, Gautam. Thank you. Can you just tell us a little bit uh, about yourself? I understand The Wall is your first science fiction novel, but um, what else do you do? I'm Indian. I have been uh, involved with speculative fiction for a few years. I've been um, an editor with The Strange Horizons magazine for the last four years and have reviewed books for them as well as for various Indian newspapers. And The Wall is my first uh, attempt at, at a novel you know, in, in that sense. And it was published by HarperCollins India, uh, in India. In my other life, which I try to keep firmly out of my writing, I am a lawyer and presently uh, doing a PhD in the UK at Oxford. But but that's that's the part of me I just try to um, hide away uh, <laughs> when, when, you know, uh, when when speculative fiction is the topic of discussion, so yeah, our show we focus mostly on on like uh, political economy, so most about like the economics of of a world, but also some around decision making and how power structures are distributed. And I think the wall had a yeah. lot of that in it. But um, when you talk yeah. about you being a lawyer and and keeping that separate, I thought it felt like some of that also bled through that there was like a courtroom scene that that happened uh, in the book, and I was like. Oh, I can I can see he's got uh, he knows what's going on here. <laughs> yes, I think I think that's right. So in the sense that one thing that my career as a lawyer has, in a sense, I guess, taught me um, is that law, in a in a sense, forms the unspoken or unrecognized plumbing of of the world in so many ways that we we don't even see. Um, and it's something that I think, for very understandable reasons, is not engaged with a lot in speculative fiction. Um, and so I did. I did think that it would be interesting to explore what form law would take and how law would express the underlying material situation when it was so altered in the way the wall is. You have a city literally within a wall, and so you have exhaustible resources, um, hierarchies that form based on on that fact, and social relations that form based on that. So, so a lot of it was was an attempt in, in part of the world building was to explore that, and of course, then law would take an important role in that exploration. Yeah. And, and and what you say about sort of the, the, the plumbing, the unseen plumbing, um, having studied economics, I feel the same way about about economics and, and the economy um, and that people often in writing sort of just assume that the the capitalist system that we have now in, in the world is what exists in their writing and, and sort of it's so ingrained as to just transfer over uh, uh, unexamined. Um, and, and I don't think you've done that. You've really said, like, this world has constrained resources in this way. Um, and so the economics of this story were were super interesting to me because the resource constraints yeah. were were real and, and hard. A lot of science fiction just kind of gets around those resource restrictions and says, you know, like, oh, we have a replicator or we have so many planets that, like, it doesn't even matter. We can just have whatever we want. And yours is saying, actually, no, we have very little. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, one, uh, it's really interesting you, you talked about how science fiction doesn't always engage with, with the economic question. It really reminds me of that Ursula Le Guin quote that I think for me has been a guiding light when she says that part of the task that, you know, writers should have is to be able to imagine alternative to capitalism. She's very clear about that. And I think, you know, um, that's something that's always at the back of my mind when I'm writing. And it's also so refreshing when when I, I, and I personally find a book doing that. And recently I was reading the Traitor Baru Cormoran series by Seth Dickinson, which is all about political economy uh, in a fantasy setting. 
Um, and so, and, and I enjoyed that so much that I, you know, kind of realized that it is something very important. And and you're right. So so in the wall, there is, it's a semi-closed system. The scarcity is not, you know, rhetorical in the sense of neoliberal economics telling us that, you know, you can't have nice things uh, because you must balance your budget. The scarcity is actually real. And in a certain sense, part of the whole desire that people have to, to go beyond the wall, that is one of the focal points of the conflict in the novel is that desire to imagine what a world might look like, which was not confined in this in this way. Um, so that was part of what I was thinking when I you know, framed the, the conflicts in, in and the stakes in the novel. Was there something that you were looking at in, in our world? I know you, you just mentioned like uh, neoliberal and, and sort of the imagined constraints that we have. Um, was there something that you were looking at and saying, you know, this is me deliberately make a commentary on something? Yes. So, well, there was one very specific place um, that, that I'll, uh, it's not really a spoiler, so I think I can, I can reveal it. Um, <laughs> at one point in the novel, a character says that um, you, you can vote to change your system of government. And, you know, we've had systems of government in the city before. Democracy, there may be some after democracy. Right now, democracy works for us. You know, so you can always vote, but you can't vote against the wall. And uh, and that is is a riff of uh, a, a comment made by, uh, I think it was Mario Draghi or one of the European uh, Union officials when when Italy w- had a popular movement against austerity uh, a few years ago. This individual, and I've forgotten who specifically it was, specifically said uh, it doesn't matter which way they vote in the Italian elections because you can't vote against European treaties. So and of course that that replicated in Greece uh, when when the Greeks voted no in their in their referendum to the the deal that was being offered by the Troika. So this kind of framing that it doesn't really matter which way the people vote because the the neoliberal economic structure that undergirds the European Union is something beyond what people can vote for or vote against uh, was a lot in my mind because it was very revealing that one comment uh, and so that part of the book kind of just is just a little bit of a sly tip of the hat to that. <laughs> um, the, the rest of it, I think, is not that direct. But but for me, um, and also I, I, in many ways, I share what Tolkien said about allegories. You know, beyond the point, if you're make if you're engaged in allegory, then it's, it it kind of gets tedious and and defeats the point of telling a good story. So it's, so it's not really allegorical, but in many ways, the scarcity created because of the wall and the inability that people have not just to go beyond the world, but to imagine what um, that might look like, uh, including being able to imagine what a horizon might look like, you know, where there is no, nothing that cuts off your, your vision. It is similar in many ways to the fact that neoliberal, modern contemporary neoliberal capitalism not only is hegemonical, but forecloses the possibility of imagining what an alternative system might even look like. Mm-hmm. So that was definitely fundamental to conceptualizing this novel um, and writing it. It's a big thing in the book is this notion that people are, their imaginations are enclosed. Like their, their vision of what the world is, yes. is enclosed. Yeah. Like even to the point where like, you know, like when the sun goes up and goes down, it's called wall rise and wall set. Right. That thing. Yes. Okay. I'm glad you stopped that because that was, that was something I was very, you know, uh, very dear to me that, that little, uh, little thing there. So, so yeah, it's always good that, you know, when somebody, somebody spots something that you've kind of really liked doing in the, in the novel. Uh, and it's sort of like a small little thing. So, yeah. Yeah. We, we had a discussion about it. We were like, is, are they, com- we were trying to figure out if they were completely enclosed, like if there was a ceiling as well, but then we're like, no, they're spurts. So. <laughs> a semi-closed semi system. The, the, the air comes in and, and water 
water is like you know renewable in in in, in uh, uh, completely um, um, non scarce supply and the rest is 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 scarce so yeah fixed volume of yeah material you have the the 15 uh mandalas yes and the first five are sort of like the the uh aristocracy the the noble class where where does like the duma the the underclass sort of start because like 14 and 15 seem to be but how how high up does it go it's the last three the last three so so the 11th and the 12th are the two farmers circles where where like the farmers live. Yeah. Um, and uh, 13th to 15th is more like seasonal labor, uh, you know, uh, carrying messages, the messengers were there, you know, because that's how communicate across across circles um, and uh, for any other kind of, of manual labor that might be required as and when it's required. So it's kind of a, a, it's a bit like a precariat, uh, yeah. not, 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 not severely oppressed because, you know, in that city, everyone has enough to eat, and and you know, so so it's it's not that there is kind of grinding oppression going on, um, but in terms of relative hierarchy, it is kind of a, a precariat that does not have a fixed um, uh, role uh, like the other circles do. But as and when the need for work arises, you know, um, oh, I see. Okay, that yeah, yeah, uh... and 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 that's kind of the book one was focused more on the quest, the wall quest, so to say. Uh, a lot of that will will emerge with greater sharpness in 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 book two. Uh, and I think as as you can tell, the the way the book one ends without giving away anything, there is a, there is going to be a book two and it's in progress. So a lot of those explorations of of structure within the city will be more space for it in 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 book two. Okay, and that and that makes uh, that makes some good sense. Does the the circle structure does that ever shift over time? Does does the Duma ever you know go down to just like we get more equality over time. Like at some point, if there's like a revolution, do we get more equality in the Duma? It goes down to being only the fifteenth because, you know, money has sort of trickled down, and then and then as inequality rises, it it creeps up until it's like the last five are the the precariat. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's that's, that's a great question, and and so there are hints, there are various hints to to that in various parts of the book. So. In the beginning, for example, there is the, there is a protest march of the farmers, uh, you know, who are who who want higher wages and a, and a guaranteed share of of the farm produce and not having to sell um, their uh, their produce to um, the upper circles. And they refer to a time when uh, the farmland was unenclosed, which is kind of a reference to the enclosure movements, you know, in in in, in especially in, in England in the late um, feudal period. And then there's a reference to a revolution uh, that was attempted about three decades before the before the story in the book begins. And one of the guiding goals of the revolution was to completely upend the system of the circles altogether. So it's no more a city that is, that is divided along circles. At present time, you have one of the reformist governors who wants to shift everyone periodically between the circles so everyone can live in how those circles existed at the present time and so kind of make it a periodic rotation. Um, and so there are these constant, I think, and like in any, I think any society, the constant attempts to uh, to drive it towards a greater equality, which are resisted. Um, and so it's always in that sense in, in flux um, and, and moving, moving back and forth, greater equality, resistance, you crush some, you, you crush some movement, but also have to make concessions to it. So, you know, so, so that is, is a constant um, happening um, in the history of the city and 
comes down to the present of the novel as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, clearly that's that's I think very poignant because you get this situation where you have like people want equality, but they'll settle for mobility. <laughs> I guess, yes, a exactly, lot of the time, exactly, and, exactly. And, that, that's kind of, and that's kind of the thing we get all the time is where people go out demand equality and say, "Well, some of you get to move up," and then. Yes, the revolution exactly, tends. Exactly. That is a real good way to suck the air, the wind out of the sails of the revolution. <laughs> uh, yes, exactly, exactly. That that was that was definitely a kind of exactly what I was thinking of. Uh, I I also thought the structure of the decision making that the council of three hundred was composed of of representatives yes. from the five, and and uh, they select their own successors. So the, like the people who have power get to bring in the next people who have power. And no vote can pass unless, like, the president allows it to go forward. And if it passes the council, then the people get to vote on it. So it it um, yeah. it's democracy, but it's a very constrained democracy. And it seems somewhat represent, like, somewhat somewhat similar to, uh, say, like the um, uh, the electoral college in the United States or the Senate uh, uh, here House or the House of Lords, of Lords in, in the UK. They're like these other yes. other bodies that say. Yeah, you can have your your say, but we get the final say. Yeah, uh, it's actually very interesting because actually here I try to reverse that. So here the the final say is with the people because the people the people vote on on those proposals, but what gets to the people um, is what is is constrained because not everything gets to the people. Yes. Um, so that was one way. So so here like so I mean I, uh, instead of the representatives having the final say, which is kind of the system we are used to. I thought, let's try and reverse it. The people will have the final say, but what they get the say on is constrained. And also, drawing from experiments like Pinochet's, you know, Chilean uh, Ch- Chilean constitution, if you want to actually alter the fundamental structure of, say, property relations, then you require two-thirds even among the people voting. Yes, uh, yes. And, and even the composition of, of, the, of the city, it will be almost impossible to get two-thirds at any time. So to try, you try and uh, majority-proof uh, your your really basic property relations, um, you know, against popular change. And and of course, one thing the book explores is what happens when that comes into conflict. Yeah. Um, so that was the, as far as the, the decision-making process went. What I was what I was thinking of. So I, I think your system in in the book makes the the power structure, the inequality in power, more explicit by saying. We'll let you decide what you can vote on, and it's much more patriarchal compared. Well, yes. I don't know if it's much more. It's it's more explicitly patriarchal, whereas I, like what yes. we're used to is like you guys can vote on everything, and then in secret we'll say yes or no to it. Uh, yes. So it's yeah. it's more explicit yeah. of like we're in charge. We're the voice of reason. Yes. I mean, re- what, where would we be without regional representation, Marshall? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a big thing in Canada, and I, I, as, as a lawyer, I read, I read that the, the Quebec judgment of the, you know, of the, of the Canadian courts, yeah. and yeah, it's been interesting to, to read that. So yeah, yeah the, the, the binational state. Yeah, I mean, the world of constitutional yes. challenges. Uh, the Meech Lake Accord is like one hell of a yes. thing. Yeah, uh, so I'm glad, I'm glad that get that gets play around the world. That's good. <laughs> so yeah, um, I. I understood, and I could have been wrong here, that the population of the circles was not equal. Like the the first five are probably yeah. lower population. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, they sort of do have regional representation, right? In that that uh, yes. you needed two thirds of the circle representation, not yes. two thirds of yeah. the population. Yeah. 
Because otherwise yes. the Duma yeah. could just do whatever it wants, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I like that. Man, the, the original gerrymandering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's actually like physical gerrymandering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it does in some ways, you know, feel very Canadian. That is, you know, or, or like the Senate in the States of like, there's two for every area. Uh, doesn't yes. matter how many people yes. live there. Yeah. You you just get it. Yeah. Although although again, given given the constraints here and the population isn't that huge in any case, the skew wouldn't be as great as happens in the Senate, for example, the American Senate. It wouldn't be that badly skewed. Right. It will be skewed, but but not that massively skewed that the injustice is so explicit to, a, to everyone <laughs> on its face. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I mean this is the thing that I think if you want to explain the U.S. like what's going on in the U.S. a lot of this is because the contradictions in their society exceed the capacity of their yeah their you know their the, the steam valve is broken like the democracy can't yeah. let off enough of the pressure you know yeah. it, can't, it can't it can't give enough people the substitute mobility for equality uh you yes. know uh, that yes. people demand so the pressure is building up and it's building up and, and and their 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 electoral system yeah. can't release enough of that tension and it really is jeopardizing the integrity of the system uh, and of course, exactly. whenever yeah. that happens, then yeah. you get the risk. You could, you could get, you could get a revolution, or you could get fascism, or like counter counter revolution. Yeah. And that's the thing. <laughs> that's yeah. scary. That's that's the scary, uh, exciting precipice. I think we all yeah. kind of you, live you on. might just be you might just be foreshadowing some of book two, but I'm not going to say anything more. <laughs> 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 so so how does this? Do you mind? I know you said your law work and things, but do you mind talking about the Indian context? Because does India have an yeah. upper house? Or do they just have the the one? It does. It does. It, yeah. India, India has an upper house. Uh, in fact, it's interesting you ask you 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 ask that right now because um, because the, the present government does not have a majority in the upper house, which is kind of state's mm-hmm. representation, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and they are pulling every trick in the book uh, to bypass that. Um, in fact, just last week there were some very contentious bills involving, as it turns out, farmers, um, and the upper house. Uh, it it looked as if the upper house might be able to. Uh, cudgel up the numbers to block um, those bills. So what they did was um, they uh, the, the the chairperson of the upper house, who's the ruling party member, not member, well, he's supposed to be independent now, but ruling party affiliated. He basically didn't allow for a vote by division and just uh, said we are going to have a voice vote. The eyes have it, and the bill was passed. So 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 in that sense, there's an attempt to kind of get around the upper house. Maybe other attempts in the past to get around the upper house by classifying bills as money bills, which would then make sure the upper house doesn't get to veto. So yeah, so yeah. India has that that right. um, uh, system. But I think in, uh, unlike in the US, the Indian upper house so far actually was working to to um, uh, avoid the kind of majoritarian ramrodding that, that it was meant to avoid. And that's why the majoritarian ruling party does not like it right now. Um, so it's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit different from what's happening in the U.S. Right. So it's a BJP lower house and a Congress upper house? It's a, it's a BJP lower house and a, a much more diverse upper house. Okay, so sometimes like, yeah. the BJP can do some wheeling and dealing and, and get away in the upper house, which they have done for some for a few laws. Sometimes they have it harder. Uh, and in the farm farmland bills, it looked like they might have a tougher time. But now, of course, one never knows because there was no vote. Um, yeah. But but yeah. yeah. That, uh, that That's a very tricky one. Um, the, the the tradition of of voice votes in the Commonwealth is it's always interesting to me. Uh, I I work in government and so I watch a lot of votes happening, and 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 when the speaker just is like, oh yeah, the eyes have it, and I'm like, I don't. That seemed a lot closer to me. I don't know how you judge that. <laughs> Let's yes, play back yes, the yes, tape. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like a, like a yeah, decibel yeah. meter there, right? Like. 
whoever's the loudest. Yes, <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Which yeah. then then you get elected based on how loud your voice can be and skews all yes. sorts of things. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I guess, like, I guess, fundamentally, for me, a lot of the what goes on the ball is about is about like just just wealth distribution, and one of the way best ways to circumvent wealth distribution problem is to open up your system, right? Get more, get more yeah. influx of materials yeah. and goods and opportunity and space, uh, and that's I think kind of what's the tension is. So, does this have any? I, I'm sorry to harp on the India thing, and we can we can move on past yeah. it. But, uh, well, but like, kind of like, but right. India went through a massive uh, kind of wealth redistribution. Yeah process in demonetization right like it, yeah it really really yeah. just sort of like they just kind of said Modi just kind of said let's re completely remodel um yeah the the landscape um i don't know if there's a question <laughs> there's not a question in there it's just yeah, no, a rambling no, no, thought I, 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 uh, so actually i mean the the influences there are, are, are there but not the ones that that i think that you're, you're asking about uh because uh, this this novel's been written over a period of 12 years um we didn't have the bjp in power for until 2014, so and, the, and the kind of political landscape was very different before that. Um, so in that sense, it, it doesn't really draw from uh, from any um, uh, from the contemporary Indian political landscape, apart from the fact that there was um, uh, our, our our now departed uh, finance uh, minister once referred to his critics on a point as compulsive contrarians, and I, it was a lovely turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. I borrowed that and put that in the novel at, at one point, but nothing, nothing beyond that. At independence, uh, there was a massive land uh, redistribution program that took place in some Indian Indian states. One of them was um, one of them was state of Kerala, uh, which which is still ruled by a, a communist, uh, well at least a formerly communist party today. And so 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 part of, of the land conflict in the novel is kind of drawn from from some of in a very basic way from some of those debates. Um, and in fact, um, there was a, 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 the chief minister of that state was a very legendary um, left, left-wing leader. His uh, pen name was Sanchika um, and the and kind of firebrand politician reformist in, in, the novel, in the novel is called Sanchika after that. So a little bit of a tip of the hat to, to that. Uh, so it was more, I was, I was drawing more from, from those kinds of agrarian reform and land reform uh, conflicts that took place at the time and less from contemporary Indian uh, political reality, which I think changed right in the middle of the novel being written and I, I couldn't have foreseen what, what would happen. So so there's not so much of that, um, but there is this. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so how do they, how in, in, uh, in Sumer do they prevent revolution? Because it seems, um, it seems like they've, they've had a couple, but that it is... Yeah from from my understanding uh, a remarkably rare event because i looking at yeah. it i would have thought like the fifth the five the upper five would would really yeah the the wealth inequality and the it would be it would worsen over time as they like extract yeah. wealth from the the farms and and from the mines yeah. and everything so yeah so how do they prevent that yeah so i think that there are three or four answers to the question one is that the present structure itself was a product of a successful revolution you know, 220 years ago. Um, so, so, so when things get too bad, it, it does happen, as as it's happened in in our world as well. Uh, but there are three or four things that that work to prevent it from being too common an occurrence, and specifically in the present system that's there in the novel. One is that, of course, because of the scarcity of of resources, uh, the inequality can never get beyond a certain level. 
so even the kind of very visible symbols of inequality are basically the fact that the the elders who, who are the governors um, are able to access uh, the color blue which comes from a specific flower that is grown in small quantities because obviously you can't have that luxury in large quantities so uh, they get to wear the color blue which is not something that other citizens can afford um, and they get to 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 eat this sweet that comes from sugarcane which again you can't grow too much because of land pressures so the, the 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 real visible symbols of of their of their supremacy are just the color blue and and the ability to to eat sweets at certain at certain times and that the of course they live in like bigger houses which are made of stone and not of 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 mud brick um, but if you if but if you think about it that isn't such massive or glaring uh, a distinction that would that would uh, override the inertia that happens once you have a, a stable governing system um, the second is that that The, the, as i've mentioned in the beginning the oppression or the or the suffering is is not visceral and it's not that the people in the duma don't have enough to eat or they're starving or mm. you know um are really badly oppressed it's it's um again because of, of just the way the city is structured within a wall and the, the resources everyone get there's there's no poverty as such right like there is inequality but there's no there's no poverty and there's no visible deprivation in in that way and the third and i think this is perhaps the most psychological thing is that when you're constrained physically in that way um the possibilities of what might happen in an upheaval may end up actually destroying everything right so so if you end up burning the farms right um you can't get food from elsewhere then you can't you can't ask the a sympathetic neighborly country to to send you food right if you're having a revolution and and if you're, if you're the french revolution you know and go to the villages and get food requisition food you can't do any of that and so i think the, and and scientists role is actually to kind of you know keep a lid on that just to kind of make sure that that the basic structure of of life continues mm-hmm. so i think the, the the immediate peril that might follow upon any violent upheaval is another thing that acts as a kind of a check on the extent to which you can make demands for reform or or fundamental restructuring and of course that plays into this whole desire to go beyond the wall because there's kind of this the understanding that even though you're not suffering within the city you can't go beyond a certain point just by virtue of the wall's existence and the only way you can do that is by by going beyond the wall so so in that sense it's it's not that kind of um novel you know i think the, the um, more mainstream maybe fantasy novel where the stakes are are you know much deeper in the sense that you have to save the world you know or or the world dies this is more like the world is is fine but it will always be just stagnating and the desire is more to break out of stagnation than to actually change or save the world if that makes sense yeah i think you know this you the situation with like the youth right um the the yeah. you know, the you know, they have the What, sir, what's the name of the group? Uh, the young Tarafians. Yeah, young Tarafians. Yeah, yeah, and they're kind of like, yeah, this notion that they're they're yeah they're they're young and and they kind of understand that this system keeps everyone poor. It keeps everyone in yeah. some kind of poverty, right? And it really it really does, you know, even if you're you're sure you're the king, but you're the king of a very small pile of stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, which is bounded in a nutshell, but. think myself king of infinite space that whole yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly so it's like it's a cool it's a cool uh it's a cool take and i think that does happen you know in in kind of like closed like that there are instances in our world of like closed economies right where like there's like yeah uh, places that are pretty they're pretty small and they and we tend to characterize them as being quite poor um like north yes. no one thinks of like north korea or like cuba as being like 
really great places, even though their economies are quite yes, 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 in- yeah. insular. Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really interesting that it was this closed economy, um, and so the the variety of resources available to them is really quite limited. So you do end yes. up with with very specialized roles of people who are like, well, yeah, like I know how to work with iron because that's the only metal we have. Um, yes. Or, you know, I, I know how to farm this land and grow this particular crop because I, I can't just go buy seeds of some other crop and, and try it out. Like, yes. this is what I've got. So even it's, it's much more enclosed than anything I think we've ever experienced in, in the real world, which is, is very interesting. I would I would imagine that that it would be not that different from say a spaceship, right? It would be the kind of close system you'd get on a spaceship, if you were if the spaceship was you know sharing on for a long time, traveling for a very long time. Yeah. Um, although the technological advancement then would also be anyway to surmount many of those issues. Um, but, but in that sense, now like the specializations of tasks wouldn't be that dissimilar from say on a long range, a long voyage spaceship, for example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in fact, in all these stories already, you you had that one linguist, and then you have the one mathematician for the for the space travel, and, and <laughs> so so yeah. So yeah, because I mean, I guess to extend that metaphor, then like I guess it becomes an issue because then you become like, well, I was the mathematician's son, right? You know, or the mathematician's yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah I, was, I was the botanist's daughter, <laughs> yeah. and how that I mean that yeah. how that how the the impacts of that become very acute over across a yes. generational span. Yeah. Uh, and also you yeah. get quite vulnerable because you really subject to the loss of expertise. I mean, I guess that's more to the subject of small population, but certainly you can see how any, you certainly see how people could in, in like a society where they couldn't leave, get, they get pigeonholed, yeah. right? Like, you know, you yeah. definitely get, like yeah. you, you could get stuck and you get stuck for, forever, right? Like there's no, yeah. there's no getting out of it. Like your, your dad committed a crime. Uh, yeah. you know, like you, how do you, you never live that down. That will be remembered yeah. forever. Um, yeah, and at the same time, I, I didn't want to make it that rigid either. So there's always a scope for moving between the circles. It doesn't happen too often, but but it's, it's people aren't formally foreclosed from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's 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 possible, and you can you can. You, but people tend more often to drop down than go up. Uh, but it's not that there is a law or that there's a formal bar on on you know that you have to do what your parents did and and. And uh, so, so, so it's more it's more fluid than that. And I've always been more interested in more like hegemonical uh, systems than kind of outrightly coercive systems in that sense. And, and Sumer is more the former than the latter. Uh, the only coercion comes from the wall's existence. Uh, the, yeah. the, the rest is more like consensus that just stabilizes over time. I, I do want to type Sumer as a name because like is it like is that a reference to like the Sumer Sumer civilization like ziggurats and Tower of Babel and all that kind of stuff? It has two roots. One of course is is, is the Sumerian civilization. I think is very obvious. Um, uh, obvious thing you you saw, uh, but in 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 ancient Indian um, epic, there's a mountain called Meru, uh, which is at the center to, of the universe, and around that you have circular seas, uh, you know that uh, layer upon layer. So uh, the original inspiration was was that mm. uh, Meru would have been too obvious and too I think on the nose um, uh, a reference. So I just like played with it a bit and, and ended up with Sumer, which also had the benefit of, of a reference to the Sumerians themselves. Yeah, when you, when you said uh, Sumer is sort of like a spaceship, it um, it made me think of Becky Chambers. Uh, and yes, the, uh, yes. yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the, the human exo, exodans? Anyway, and, and their, their generation ships and everyone sort of like yes. being very careful about the resources they have because this is all they have. You know, people aren't making useless escape attempts right they're not just like oh well let's just try this and see what happens 
Yeah. It's like they have yeah. to be very careful yeah. about what they try because if it goes over the exactly. wall and they don't follow it, yeah. it's gone forever. Exactly. And, and, and Becky Chambers is a writer I really, really enjoy reading. So um, the, the comparison, I mean, it's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also enjoyed this tension that you put in front of the book of like, like, does it keep things out or does it keep us in? You know, is it a prison or yeah. is it a wall or is yeah. it a prison? Uh, and that was, yeah. I, I, I really no, enjoyed that. I was, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was chatting with, um, with Olaf yesterday and, and, um, and we talked about the Robert Frost poem, uh, where the line is before I was to build a wall, I'd like to know who I was walling in or walling out uh, or keeping in or keeping out. So that is a fundamental tension that, that is there in the, in the novel that, yeah, that was, that was intentional. Do you, do you care to comment on which side of that you follow? You want to leave it ambiguous. <laughs> um, so that, that 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 I can say will definitely be answered. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there will be an answer to that question. I, I wouldn't leave you hanging on, on that. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll wait for the book then. So, so what side do you come down on then in terms of like uh, this this inequality and saying you know should we have should we have more of it or or less of it? Like ban the circles or or uh, you know sick the watchman on them oh well i mean i, I think i think my sympathies are, are very clear in, in the novel so obviously on the side of of greater uh, um, equality and and um and and trying to um you know um uh have a city without circles although at the same time what i would say is that that for me the best uh speculative fiction best science fiction um, has always been one in which you can kind of tell the author's sympathies but at the same time it, it doesn't really a, it doesn't attempt to to place all the firm answers before you, mm-hmm. um, and it, it 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 frames the question and and leaves the answer up to the reader to to determine what it is it means for them. And secondly, it, it gives the antagonist good arguments. Um, and and I was I, I felt like I, I really needed to ensure that that the, okay, so we have the protagonist Mithila and and her friends who want to go beyond the world. Um, and of course, the idea is that the, the reader. You know, empathizes with, with with them that that is the point of, of the novel at the same time i didn't want to uh, have a situation where her opponents you know, I mean, the elders her own sister you know the religious group i didn't want to caricature them as, as cartoon villains or as buffoons um, you know or, or just as simple oppressors because that that's not the point and and it's, it's always more complex than that so i think the the task always for me has been and again here it's kind of drawing from legwin's work uh, books like the dispossessed books like that um, like the opponent should also have like their say and, and their day um, and and where the re- and the reader of course you want the reader to empathize with the protagonist but I think the best fiction is always where at the end the reader kind of knows which side they're on but isn't quite sure it's not <laughs> that clear cut um, so so that was what I was trying to do um, with kind of making it a bit more complex yes. uh, in the novel both the task of going beyond the wall and the existing reality within the wall. During the the trial of the the young Terafians, it was it was interesting and and I enjoyed it. Uh, but I was also extremely aggravated by the arguments of of say Rostogi and and uh, uh, is it Amri? Uh, Amri, yeah, it, yeah, it, it, Amrit. Means, it means nectar in the yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I. A <laughs> He's not very nectar-like, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, he's he's definitely not at all uh, like his namesake. Yeah, I was I was super aggravated because I was like, these are arguments that I think I hear regularly of like, well, this is the system we have, and we sort of just have to live within it, and and like, yeah, you know, if we sh- if we rock the boat too much, like we don't know what's going to happen, so like just don't. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. And I was like, I know yeah. these are terrible arguments, but but, but, but they're effective. Are persuasive for, for a large number of, of people and, and for, I think, you know, reasons that are not hard to, to, to understand. Although I don't agree with those reasons, but you can understand those reasons as well. So, yeah. It's like listening to Trump talk. Exactly. <laughs> there were parts where I was like, I'm sure I've seen this come from either Trump or Pence, like verbatim. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So, in the, in the, again, the novel began, Trump and Pence, when I think nobody could have imagined their existence. Uh, unfortunately, the world went in a different direction. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah like, even, even the wall, right? I mean, I, I was, I was, I mean, Trump's rhetoric of the wall. Yeah. Um, when when we first came up with it, I I at that time this novel was kind of had been suspended for a while. I wasn't working on it, uh, but I was I was uh, of course the, his rhetoric is is racist and, and horrible in so so many levels, and you know there are lots of reasons to be to be alarmed uh, at that. And and I am as as anybody else is, but also a different part of me, the writer part, was like I had this idea, and and now suddenly everyone will associate this book with, with Trump's wall. And, and that wasn't ever, <laughs> ever, ever going to be the intention. So, so that, that happened as well. Yeah. You might get a lot of like a, a buyership from, from like a GOP, you know, like the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. We're going to buy the wall and they'll, they'll be very disappointed. <laughs> Who knows? They, I mean, they might like it. I don't, I don't think this book is uh, insulting to conservatives in any way. So no, I think, no, I think, no. Uh, I think it, it can, there's a lot of power in sophistry. Mm-hmm. Right, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, and there's that yeah. tendency. There's a tendency to be feel like morally right about the truth and things, but those things are are sometimes yes. in politics in the real world less important. Often, uh, I yes. think that's a valuable. That's a valuable thing to recognize. I guess that. Um, yeah, and these things. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree yeah. yeah, these things. These things are a fight. You know, uh, and they're mm-hmm. not. They're not. They're not necessarily predetermined along any sorts of lines of right or wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I think that's really well um, um, pointed out when you have th- Mithila confronts Rostogi at the the Maidan and offers the, yes. the vision of the horizon, and and yes. that seems to like capture the, the the imaginations of some number of people and and yeah. really do her cause justice, while yeah. actually not really articulating arguments of why this is right or anything, but just getting their imagination yeah. was enough that people were like, yeah. oh, actually maybe. Yeah, no, exactly. So I think I think that, that the the the, um, the figure of of the select the scientists are I think important here because they're the ones who always argue in the language of scientific uh, inquiry. And you know, if we if if we don't know, we don't know, and we will say we don't know. And there are many things that we don't know. And and but where we do, we we reason. And you know, uh, and I think that that at least uh, a part of the novel explores. The uh, the limitations of of that form of argument when it comes to um, uh, persuading people to come along with you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and of course, Mathila and her friends try that. They they, they try the, the the mode of you know reasoning of saying that look, all things considered, this is what we should do. Uh, but they also realize that at various points that 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 isn't enough, um, and and that's why this whole this part of the book is about people who have never been able to imagine what a horizon might look like. If you can just get them to see it once through various techniques, you know, make them close their eyes, let the world recede slowly. So they, they make various attempts to, to try and do that. And the idea is if people get to see it once, then they will think about it in a very different way uh, that no argument can, can you know, uh, cut through in, in that way. Yeah. So part of it was to explore, you know, things like that. 
your language also constrains what you can imagine and what you can articulate and the other way around as well uh, so that is again another theme that you know uh, the horizon as a word is something that doesn't bring up any image to these people for obvious reasons but if once you match the word to the image then things change and language changes and then how you perceive reality changes and then the actions you take you know mm-hmm. can be can become easier or or, or more possible when I was reading about the scientists, I, I was thinking about like, like an interesting, like this metaphor for neoliberalism, like technocracy is really a major yeah. bulwark. You know, this notion that you got like, yeah. well, you got your engineers and economists and they'll come and they'll tell you why X won't yeah. work or Y won't work. And, and that worked really yeah. well for a while, but it, it yeah. really doesn't hold up when you're dealing with this unbridled power of imagination. You know? Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that there's, yeah. you know, the one thing we've seen in the, the force the thing we're getting outplayed by is the force, the power of right-wing reaction to capture, really capture yep. and energize people's imaginations. Um, yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, that, that's, yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think one of the objectives of, of the book also was to show that that needn't always come from the right wing or from, you know, mm-hmm. um, from, from the, um, from the repressive side. So just, just in the, in the same way, you know, you could, you could place imagination or harness imagination uh, in the uh, in the pursuit of say an emancipatory goal as well, um, so so you know, and this is again coming back to the whole thing of trying to to articulate a way in which people can imagine what a horizon might be because it's something that they have no experience of and the word doesn't make sense. But still, if they can imagine it, mm-hmm. how things might change and how things might alter. Uh, so it needn't always be a repressive ideology that harnesses imagination to its service. It could also be the other way around. Which, which then brings us back to, to Ursula Le Guin and, and imagining an alternative. Yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, that, yeah. That, I mean, I think I think I think obviously the, the influence of Le Guin is is all over the book, and and you know, it is fundamentally shaped by <laughs> by by my experience engaging with with her work. So yeah, yeah, and that, that's not a bad thing. That's uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the best. That's as far as sci-fi pedigrees go. You can't do a lot. Can't do a lot worse. Yes. Than, can't do better <laughs> than that, really. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so the wall has definitely given. Uh, it's it's a book that um, has a lot to think about in it. It's it's definitely given me lots to think about, and and I enjoyed reading it for for that reason. Yeah, it's a good it's a good fit for this show because <laughs> this is uh, thank you, thank been, you. Really glad <laughs> you yeah, uh, as as a debut writer, you're always a little nervous about have those things worked and have the ideas worked. But so it's always good when someone says that that it made them think because, you know, that was, that was the whole, whole task. We didn't, uh, we didn't warn you about this ahead of time. And I realize now that I should have, but, uh, do you have, uh, some recommendations for our audience about, about things that they should read? Uh, and, um, ideally things that they probably haven't heard of, not, this isn't a requirement, but if you're like, here's, here's another, you know, debut author or someone that I've I've worked with. Right. So I think that with regard to to what you said about uh, the, your your show being being about the economy and 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 political economy, so there again, as I said earlier, a little while earlier, uh, Seth Dickinson's series, the uh, Traitor Baro Comedian series, for me, you know, does the whole political economy in the context of colonialism um, and imperialism so well. Uh, you know, I, that that book is just uh, spectacular. The series is, for me is spectacularly good. Uh, so I would I would recommend that to to everyone who's who's you know into the intersection of fantasy and and economics, mm-hmm. um, and I guess also since uh, uh, I, I I should I should recommend a couple of Indian um, spec writers because you know 
uh, specifically writers who publish like I did in India um, with Indian publishing houses, often, you know, there's kind of a gap in communication. Uh, so this year there have been two two novels uh, that have come out um, apart from mine. Uh, one is Samit Basu's The Chosen Spirits. Uh, it was recently reviewed in Locus, the Locus magazine, and, and Samit's been writing for a long time and I think is reasonably well-known abroad as well. That came out um, in May. And in, in February, you had a book called Analog Virtual uh, by Lavanya Lakshmi Narayan um, that uh, was set in a near-future Bangalore uh, city in, in um, mm. South India, which is kind of a technological hub. And imagine kind of a divided city between the virtuals and the analogs. Um, uh, so yeah, interesting, interesting, fun read. Uh, so yeah, two two uh, new Indian spec fit novels along with mine that came out this year. And as far as the political economy goes, you know, uh, Seth Dickinson is 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 just like for me out of this world. So yeah, yeah. I've I've only read uh, the Trader Baru Cormorant, and uh, but it was it was really quite lovely. I I really enjoyed it, uh, and we'll read the rest. It of gets better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, so, so you, you work with Strange Horizons. Is there anything, uh, anything interesting there happening that we should be aware of? Well, so tomorrow, Olav's article on neoliberalism and the history of science fiction is coming out, which I've edited. So that's coming out tomorrow. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> so that's, that's, uh, it's, uh, it's, that I, I'm looking forward to, to that coming out. Um, and, um, uh, we uh, earlier this this year uh, or last year we had uh, we had an, uh, a short story by Shiv Ramdas that was shortlisted for the Hugo's. It's mm-hmm. called and now his lordship is laughing. It's set in the Bengal famine, uh, mm-hmm. the the Bengal famine that took place uh, in India in 1940, Churchill's uh, direction to uh, divert supply of grain during World War Two. So uh, so that that was a good story and um, and right now we we had a couple of new interesting stories. One dealing with drones. Um, written by a Palestinian uh, writer, and uh, and the, the other was uh, the other was in last week's uh, uh, edition. I, I can't exactly remember the name right now, uh, but yeah. So so yeah, there's that, and 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 then there's also the series that I edit uh, with uh, Jeff Ryman. It's called Hundred African Writers of of SFF, and the interviews with about 120 young. Um, SFF writers from the African continent, different countries. That's an ongoing series that's been going on for three years. And you, you really come across some fascinating and wonderful people in that and, and the introduction to their work as well. So, yeah. That sounds incredible. Uh, and how do how do we go about um, subscribing to Strange Horizons? Oh, it's just like, uh, it's a weekly, I think it's the normal RSS feed. Uh, it's, it's a weekly... Uh, magazine and 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 uh, every Monday, so uh, this is a good question because I am so used to going to the website. I've never subscribed to it since, since I worked there. <laughs> <laughs> the usual email subscription thing uh, that happens, and and, and there's a Patreon. So so yeah, <laughs> we'll, we'll put links in the show notes. Uh, for, for people, so. <laughs> yeah, it's That's that's, that's yeah. the website. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and your own work. You said that the sequel is in progress. Any any feelings on on when that uh, would be available? Oh yeah, so I, the draft is done. It's in edits right now. Uh, deadline the hard deadline is December fifteenth to send to the publisher, um, and it'll be out uh, middle of next year around the same time as this one. So I'm hoping uh, June or July or thereabouts. 
Uh, it's hard to tell with publishers and their own prerogatives, but yep. from my side, it'll be with them on December fifteenth, and they have indicated it'll be uh, middle of middle of next year. Um, I also have a short story coming out in the in the in the Golang's anthology of South Asian um, science fiction that's due out in a, in a few months. Uh, that's as far as my present work goes. Uh, apart from which, it's mostly editing the, the magazine and and working on the nonfiction there. Well, th- uh, thank you, Gautam, for taking so much time to speak with us. We really appreciate it. We really enjoyed this conversation. It was a wonderful discussion, and it was was I, I learned new things about about the book. <laughs> to you, so <laughs> this was very wonderful. Thanks so much for having me on. Yes, thank you. All right, well, then ho- hopefully we can connect again in the future. Um, yes, yeah, so yes, at some corner, one of those, you know, events. So, yeah. yeah. So one of the things, uh, if you are intrigued by the wall and you would like to purchase a copy, um, we have a bookshop.org account, and you can uh, purchase through us, and you can uh, help help out uh, get a copy of this wonderful book, and also help out our podcast as well, uh, and not support Amazon, which would be great. Um, of course, we don't have any, you know, <laughs> I got to be careful because I don't want to offend authors, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, perfectly but, fine. <laughs> but, but certainly, yeah, it, um, you know, but we we encourage you to check out yeah. check out our bookshop.org page, and you can also get some other uh, see some other books we've talked about, and some other even nonfiction books that we've read and uh, kind of shaped our thinking. So, people want to find you uh, on social media. Uh, where is the best way to do that, uh, Gautam? Uh, Gautam Bhatia eighty eight is my. Uh, Twitter handle. For sure. And is there one for Strange yeah. Horizons as well? Is it just Strange Horizons? Yes, yeah. That's at Strange Horizons, yeah. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we hope you have a wonderful day.